You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to episode 328 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's program, we have an evocative conversation with our resident historian, Surf William. We talk about the veracity of the U.S. Declaration of Independence, ideals versus hypocrisy, John Locke, the Marburg Treaty, racism, bigotry, and such in the U.S., privilege, being sidetracked by divisive issues, ignorance and fear, justice, dirty tricks, Christianity and Islam, the elite, peasants, generals, Popes, kings, and queens, capitalism as a religion, and the power of philosophy when feeling disheartened and depressed, among other things. A grand conversation with Surf William. We have an EW essay titled We Live, and an excerpt from a piece written by Jim Harrison titled Letters to Yasinin, as read by our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavise. And we have a poem called Blue Sky. All of this, as is always the case, is imbued, infused with the energy of several great tunes. It's so nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 328 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours. Oh, 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 oh,
no static I got a habit of making time I might rock the blue in traffic I might look to the sky for a sign Never wanted to be a bad man But I'm a bad man just the same Let the sun do nothing else to do We got no time for games Why should one be happy? Because the sun shines down on you as you bask in its light and energy? Because the birds chirp and sing back when you whistle off of the front stoop? The wind breezes through the leaves and the trees and bristles through the bushes as a crescent moon illuminates the sky softly as the stars shine eternal. Is this inspiring enough to make you happy? Maybe the real challenge is coming from the ways in which people behave, the culture of our humanity. How grand we believe it will be this life when we are younger, assuming one is fortunate enough to feel open and hopeful during their early years of existence. Though as time goes on and experience is had, many people transcend the omnipresent ways and manipulations the detrimental tendencies and innate weaknesses of the individual, as well as those that go viral in the pack, tribes, and clans. People who transcend are among us, all around us, within us, wise, kind, courageous, creative, imaginative, ethical, with humor, with love, walk lightly, ingest rightly are not arrogant or overly aggressive because of fear, do not wholly shut down as others draw near. We embrace ourselves and this life, knowing there will be times of great ease and times of great strife, and genuine with earnest and a strident spirit and warm heart, we take, we give, we live. down, you move too fast, you got to make the morning last, just kicking down the cobblestones, looking for fun and feeling groovy. Feeling groovy. Hello, lamppost, what you knowin'? I come to watch your flowers growin'. Ain't you got no rhymes for me? Do it and do do, feeling groovy. Ba da 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 da. 
something and groovy I got no deeds to do, no promises to keep I'm dappled and drowsy and ready to sleep Let the morning time drop all its petals on me Life, I love you, all is groovy Hello? Surf William, is that you, my friend? Is this you, Conundrum? It is the EW Conundrum. <laughs> okay. <laughs> good to hear your voice. It's good to hear yours as well, my friend. Are you reading me loud and clear with no interference? No interference at all. You sound pristine. Okay, because you usually have a complaint when we, when we interview. <laughs> well, let me let people know. Who I'll be and I'm, pretending, I'm pretending like it's first thing in the morning because I always tell you, call me first thing in the morning when I'm sharp, not midday when I'm dull. But you, you, you don't listen to my instructions, so okay. I'm going to pretend it's 8 a.m. Let's pretend, yes, mm -hmm. and okay. and let's uh, let people know who we're talking with. I mean, regular listeners know they're like, oh, it's that Surf William guy. Yeah, <laughs> Surf William, he is our resident historian, a regular contributor on the program. And uh, we always have really great conversations, and I'm sure we're going to have another one today. We have some areas of uh, focus for our discourse. We're going to talk about Marxist inter interpretation of history, the millennium-old battle between Christianity and Islam, especially in the Mediterranean, Camus' letters to a German friend, moral bankruptcy and... Uh, you know, how that is so present within the Republican Party. And I, I also would like to talk a bit about the veracity of the Declaration of Independence from an historical perspective. And uh, maybe we'll get into the Democratic field of presidential candidates as well. Who knows where this is going to go. Wow. Okay. So where do you want to start with all that? Well, let's start. You you brought up the Declaration. You may, actually made me do homework. You made me go back and reread the Declaration of Independence. Well, thank you for doing that. you know, how often do we do that, right? Right. We should do it often as citizens. Um, I agree. So, you know, what you brought it up. So what do you what were you thinking? Because I have my own my own interpretations of it and and my own ideas about about. You said, what was your phrase, the veracity? Yes, the veracity of the De Declaration of Independence. So when we say veracity, are we talking, does that mean specifically like the truth of it, like the truth of the document, inherent truth, or or the believability of the document? Because the, the, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and the founding of the United States of America, to me, were based on what I consider to be really admirable ideals, now, we very rarely achieve those ideals, but the foundation of those ideals and, the, and the, the expression of those ideals and saying that these are the things that we believe in, this is where we'd like to get to, even if we're not there yet. Um, I think it's important for people to continue to emphasize the ideals that were expressed in documents like the Declaration of Independence. Um, it's really easy to get into the hypocrisy of it. 
Oh, it, it is. Uh, and, and as you mentioned, we're talking ideals. And I guess the reason I bring I mean, it up... All, all men are created equal. They wrote that right in there. Boom. We believe all men are created equal. Meanwhile, half of them are holding slaves or, you know, some large proportion of them. Yeah, right? Right. So, you know, right there, you can, you can discard it and say, aha, it is now illegitimate. Because, look, these are slaveholders saying this. And by the way, a lot of members of the, of the um, British Parliament when they received their copy of it, you know, not too long after it was written, um, they said the same thing. Like, this is a joke. These people hold slaves. Hypocrisy. And yet they talk about the, the inherent hypocrisy of it. Now, it's there. The inherent hypocrisy is there. But the ideals are really good ideals. I embrace them. Yes, as do I. And, I'm, I, you know, when you look at documents that came before the Declaration, the U.S. Declaration of Independence, and those that have come since... Uh, that's where the historical perspective comes into play. As is, uh, I'm, I'm trying to analyze it. You know, I mean, well, oh, go ahead. It, it, well, it has been informed. Those folks that wrote it, with well, Thomas Jefferson in particular, um, it, it, he was informed by documents before, thinkers and philosophers before that he studied, that he admired. I, I think the Declaration of Independence is just a chain, or I'm sorry, a link in a chain of documents that came before it and came after it because you know clearly jefferson said it jefferson I, I think there's even a quote out there that says something to the effect of well this is, wasn't meant to be an original document in other words the thinking here is not some groundbreaking um you know process i'm sorry about my dogs the thinking the thinking here is an evolution of ideas expressed by john locke and expressed by, I think there was a German treaty called the Marburg. The, it was like the Marburg Treaty or something in the 1500s. And, you know, at that time, look, there was a lot of upheaval. There was a lot of upheaval in the world, religiously, socially. Um, so it's not surprising that these ideas of inalienable rights started to surface. And, and that people started to think more deeply about what is inherently ours. You know, that was a time, if you go back to the 1500s and then follow that through through John Locke and the, and the, the age of, of enlightenment and the age of reason, what you see is this, this groundswell of revolutionary thought. Like, wait a minute, we don't have to listen to the sovereign. Wait a minute, we are all our own sovereigns. Like, God gave us these rights. No government can bestow them upon us or take them away from us. So, you know, the declaration, to get back to your original point, was really a link in a bigger chain of thinking and, and documents that came before it, and some that came after it, too. Exactly. And, I mean, you know, 200 and some years later, 250 years later, you know, uh, how how much have we achieved toward those ideals here in the United States, of course, uh, and, you know, outside of it as well, I guess we could. Are, are we at the forefront of those ideals? Um. Again, I think it's really important to state them very clearly and unambiguously. Um, and it's, it's important for us to sort of come to an agreement as to, you know, how we best achieve them. I guess, getting to the root of your question, how, much, how many people in America, for example, still believe that? Like how many people, if you'd really asked them, said we're all created equal? There's a lot of racism and bigotry in this country. At the core of racism and bigotry is I'm better than you. I'm better than you by virtue of the color of my skin. I'm better than you by virtue of where I was born. I'm better than you by virtue of what my passport says. So do we even believe those basic fundamental principles that are spelled out in the Declaration of Independence. The big one, right? All men are created equal. I, I don't think that's a universal belief. I think the goal is to 
educate people and hopefully let them realize that in fact everybody really is born with the potential the big question becomes what does the what does the playing field look like right right and the playing field is is very much influenced by our history, the choices we've made, or the things that occurred maybe randomly to a certain extent. Uh, you, you look at some of the uh, inequity in, in our society in the United States of America based on race, uh, in particular mm-hmm. based on sex. And, you know, all of, all of that inequity is existent today because of the choices we've made in the past. Well, I, I, I mean, I, I say to that you're putting it kindly. I say, I say the inequities that we see today are the, are the result of injustice, historical injustice and exploitation. You know, those who exploited and those who were exploited. And to the, right down to the modern day, you've got those of us who, who exist in privilege and the other ones who historically who were exploited. They exist, um, they exist in uh, 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 poverty. And they exist in a world of a loss of opportunity, and they exist in a place places of high mortality, poor education, high crime. And historically, look, they're the same people whose ancestors were exploited. Right, right. And then going back to racism or bigotry, people who sort of subscribe to that approach, that, that mm-hmm. worldview, they would say, well, it's because innately we are better. That's why they haven't been able, those other people, haven't been right. able to achieve as much. Right. Now, and the, the problem with that argument is, like, let's play devil's advocate. We're better because we're white. Um, well, how does that hold up when you have black scholars and black athletes and, and, and people of color who, are, who, who achieve all the things? And maybe they're, maybe the, the response would be, well, they're aberrations. You know, they're... Well, no, research show. Look, look, here's the thing. Like, I, I still believe in science. And there is no genetic difference between me and any person of color. Genetically, genetically, DNA-wise, we're the same. Our brains are the same size. Our bodies are composed of the same muscles. We're, we're the, look, that's just science. We're the same. And where science also shows that racism is clearly the domain of the ignorant is that when you give anybody, any person of color from any background, when you give them the same advantages that you give people with privilege, when you give them safe housing and quality education and quality health care, when you give them these things, they achieve at the same levels as anybody else. So clearly the science says, look at these reasons why you hate are your reasons why you hate. You can have them, but don't try and base them in science because they're simply irrational. They're irrational fears and hates because those people are capable of achieving anything that any other people are capable of achieving if they're given the same advantages right? and the same resources. So, you know, again, racism and bigotry, you and I have talked about this before. Racism and bigotry is based on ignorance and fear. It can't be supported by science. And uh, ultimately, I think education is the only real way you can get at it. Well, and you know, I'm, I'm noticing right now in our conversation, this, you know, typical uh, of what uh, the, those who are indeed in power want to happen. We get sidetracked by divisive issues and we start arguing and talking and analyzing mm-hmm. uh, you know, bigotry and racism. And, and it's, it's, it's all part and parcel of the divide and conquer strategy. Then we stop focusing as a collective, uh, those of us who 
are not in, in the privileged class, the extreme privileged class. We stop focusing on them and, and why they have so much and the rest of us have not as much. You know, it, it, we're, we're doing it right now in our conversation today, Sir William. It happens again and again, and that keeps us from working, at, you know, from that common uh, commonality that we all have as humans, as citizens in this country, to to more effectively focus on, analyze, pinpoint the injustice that is perpetrated on us by those at the top 1% in, in our society. And they win again, the, those top 1%. It, it sounds like your leitmotif here, the, the deeper uh, um, theme here, is justice. So when we talk, when you start to talk about the dirty tricks and the divisiveness, I'm going to say it again. We could... We could paint all politicians with the same brush, but empirically, again, we come back to the Republican Party and the, and the strategies uh, and techniques of the Republican Party over the last 45 years, which is exactly what you just outlined. Wedge issues that divide a voting public who normally would have a lot in common and normally would probably vote in, in a more universal way if you can divide them with wedge issues like abortion and guns and immigration, if you can truly divide them, then you can break off a big chunk of those voters who wouldn't normally vote for you, Mr. Republican, who's a multimillionaire, who's in favor of less government regulation and more power for the 1%. They wouldn't normally vote for you, but because you've latched onto that wedge issue that they're very emotional about, they do vote for you. So when you what you're talking about, I think, is this deeper issue of justice and how the Republican Party at every turn undermines these basic notions of justice and fair play, whether it's exploiting a wedge issue or gerrymandering um, or disenfranchising people. Everything they're doing is designed to consolidate power and exclude a huge part of the population. Exactly. Well said. And now, do you, do you think, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about Christianity and Islam, the millennium-old battle between the two. Is this part of that strategy, or is this something outside of it? Are, are these, is this strife, uh, this conflict, uh, part of the divide-and-conquer uh, approach that the, the, the top, the privileged, wants to, to uh, get a sidetracked with? Or is this just a, something coming from the grassroots human level of, of trying to figure out what, what is the way to look at life and who is in charge and who we bow down to and such? Well, if I could, uh, uh, you know, I did bring up that topic because I just read a book about the various wars in the 1500s in the Mediterranean for control. But I also talked about Marxist interpretations of history. And um, we can talk about religion, and we can talk about religion as a motivator and r religion as a divisive force, you know, us versus them, Christian versus Muslim, uh, Muslim versus Jew. We can talk about that. But I ultimately come back to, if you look at those battles in larger contexts, uh, I come back to basic economic issues. And I can't help but interpret all of that stuff, including the, the book I just read on these Mediterranean sea battles, as, a, as sort of a, a Marxist look at history, meaning it's, the, it's class warfare. Because the elite in all the different countries and all the different religions, they seem to be fighting for the exact same things. They seem to have a lot in common. And the common people and the workers and the slaves... 
they all seem to have a lot more in common too. But the structure is such that it allows us to div- divide, you know, along religious lines or 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 national nationality lines, and then we fight each other. So. Um, Christian and Muslim in the context of what we're talking about today, unfortunately, is used oftentimes to pit us against each other. When in fact, I'll say it again, a poor person in a Muslim country has more in common with a poor person in a Christian country than those people do with the elites in their country. For sure. For sure. So, you know, Christian, Muslim, Muslim, Jew, um, uh, I feel like when I read these histories, I can't help but feel for the plight of the common foot soldier who was usually just fodder for, for, for cannons and, and chewed up and spit out and replaced with another nameless, faceless peasant who marches into the field and gets mowed down and then another one gets put in his place. I can't help but feel for those people um, compared to the generals and the sultans and the popes and the kings and the princes who sometimes fight with them side by side, but they're really fighting for a lot more because it is all their land and property and wealth that they're fighting for. So they're really motivated. But the peasant gets nothing. The best the peasant gets is when the war is over, you've got all your limbs and you, go, you get to go back to your peasant village and, and, and farm in the dirt and be exploited by the, by the aristocracy. So, you know, uh, I see the poor working people and the foot soldiers as having a lot more in common with each other. For certain, but at the same time, you know, I look at humanity generally and vastly and say, why, ask why, are we so um, compelled to, to find the, this higher power that, that is going to give us, uh, you know, safety, is going to show yeah. us the way, rather than stand firm and and take responsibility for some of the higher ethical ideals that uh, and and I you know uh, forms of justice that you and I are, are alluding to. Why do we always try to to, to wait for a savior, or, or or be so willing to to um, prostrate ourselves uh, on, on the ground in front of a, a higher being, a higher entity? I, I, you know I. I <laughs> Right. Philosophers much greater than you and I have been battling with with this question for 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 millennia. Right. Um, You know, I guess ultimately at its very core, we are capable of a profound amount of fear and we are capable of a profound amount of belief. So if you combine those things, we can really formulate any wild fantasy in our minds and convince ourselves that it's true. When you think about God sitting up on a throne up in heaven, you know, deigning to, to curse one group of people while blessing another group of people, that's kind of absurd. Absurd. I mean, just speaking objectively, that's kind of great. It's absurd, right? It's crazy. Yes. But, but we can... But if enough people say it's true, and if they wrap it in the vestiges of, of respectability, like the like the cloaks of the deacon and the and the ornamentation of the Catholic Church, you know, it. Listen, we're simple folk. We like pageantry. We like shiny things. Eventually, we'll believe that, and that's what we will follow. Even though, objectively speaking, it's completely crazy. But people believe their religions, and why? Because we're ca- because we people are capable of believing anything we decide we're going to believe. There's no global warming. There's no global warming. Now, I just heard a Republican town planner in South Carolina talking about 
coastal flooding and how it's becoming a major, major crisis in all the coastal states in America and, and practically everywhere. And while not even acknowledging climate change, he went on to talk about how we all have to adapt to this new reality. So here's a person who can really compartmentalize. He's dealing with it on the front lines, right? He's like beach management. And you're watching your beaches get washed away because ocean levels are rising and storms are becoming more violent. And he has to deal with that daily and can still say nothing about climate change. Oh, we don't know yet. The science isn't the science isn't finished yet with that. Um, you know, we humans are capable of convincing ourselves of anything, no matter how absurd. And that's a big uh, uh for, that's a big source of strength for organized religion. And we're really, really scared a lot of the time. And that's another source for organized religion. Well, yeah, and, and this... Uh... I hate to be negative, but that's kind of how I see it. Science can be kind of cold and dispassionate. That's troubling to a lot of people. Well, uh... it's, it's nicer to think about uh, the heavenly home when we all die, where we all hang out, and it's wonderful. That's a nice thought. I suppose, but at the same time, when that mentality is justifying hate and pain uh, in the lives of other people who are deemed through that mentality, that rationale, uh, I guess you could say, uh, they, don't, they don't seem to be affected, those folks, when well, they see the, the pain. That's the problem with injustice. Dogs. That's the problem when you adopt, when you become Dr. Nair and you adopt a set of beliefs and instead of critically analyzing them and determining whether they have your word veracity, you just accept them. And now they are the truth. This is the truth. And when you're a real zealot, other people must accept this truth too, or they will be, they will be condemned to eternal damnation. Well, if you're a true believer, you can't let that happen. So you and I look at the actions of the fundamentalist and we say, what a horrible, cruel thing, things these, these people do. But the fundamentalist says, I'm doing this out of a profound love for these people who I'm blowing up with a suicide bomb or for these people who I'm enslaving. I'm steering them to Islam or I'm steering them to Christianity. If I didn't do that, I would be a hypocrite. Or capitalism. Embrace, right, or capitalism, but, but more so religion because if you don't really, if you're not a zealot and trying, to, and trying to convert people, you're not really doing your job as a Christian evangelist, for example, because their job is to convert people because if they don't convert you, you go to hell forever and that's on them. They have to convert you. So we see cruelty where they see um, mercy. It's a little nuts. You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. It is. Well, I, you say I, I throw in capitalism uh, and you kind of brush it off a bit. It's not in the context of religion, but is not capitalism a religion? Uh, oh, I, I is it yes. not? If you don't buy into it, then you're you're a slacker, and and you deserve what what you get. If if you question it, then you're out of touch with what is right, what is you know. Well, you, wise. you bring up hey, you bring up a good point, and I say this all the time on your show too. Um, capitalism is a failure as we practice it today. It's a failure, and and don't listen to me, some nobody, you know leftist voice out in the wilderness listen to donald trump listen to bernie sanders uh listen to uh uh the premier of china these are people who uh bemoan and look at what's happening on our southern border if you want to talk about capitalism as a as a complete disaster uh when trump talks about jobs being taken away you and i have talked about this 
he's questioning the very foundations of capitalism, the very ideas that capitalism was founded on. You know, labor is going to go where it's cheap so we can maximize so we can ma- production will go where labor is cheap so we can maximize profit. That's capitalism 101 right there. Uh, if you don't like it, then you don't like capitalism. Then you need a different system. Uh, but we're not even allowed to think about that. So, yeah, I agree with you. It is treated like a religion and we're not allowed to even question it. No, even though it's questioned all the time by people who claim to be capitalists. When it's not working for them, basically. Right, when it's not working for them, when it's not working for a large group of people. And here's the reality. Capitalism does not work for a large group of people, but we don't talk about that. How about that guy that owns the island? What's his name? That's getting... Oh, geez. Yeah, there's some capitalism. I think you're more up on current events than I am. You wanted to talk about the Democratic candidates. And, and you know, I probably have something to say, but I, it's almost like preseason football. I'm not so super concerned with where they are right now as they flesh out their positions, because the reality is I agree with any one of them more than any Republican. But so you, the reality, the reality for me is I like watching the, the fight. I like watching them flesh things out. I like seeing them grow and, and, and sort of evolve in their ideas. But ultimately, I'm going to vote for whoever gets the nomination on the Democratic side. Absolutely. Yeah. And, 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 and while I recognize all the ills of the two party system and I recognize the ills of the Democratic Party, there are concrete reasons why I vote for president and why I vote Democrat. Do you think, though, I, any of these candidates can really make uh, significant change? Do you think they even believe they could? I don't know. I just don't know that the system is really capable of any sort of real meaningful substantive change. I don't know that answer. Did Obama make substantive substantive, real long lasting change in the system? Not really. Wealth continues to be unevenly distributed towards the one percent away from the worker. Education uh, costs continue to go up. Um, um, housing, you know, things continue to get more expensive. Jobs continue to either stagnate or pay less. You know, did Obama really radically change anything? I, I don't think he did. I like them, you know, personally, but I don't know that anything radically changed. Well, you have the Affordable, you know, Care Act. You have uh, things like that that mm-hmm. affected positively a lot of people. Yeah, uh, you know. Um, yeah, so there are policies. So right, so you could look at specific policies and say this is better now. Yeah. I agree. I mean, like more structurally and foundationally. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like sort of like 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 where is wealth generated? Where does it go? Who gets the majority of the resources and for what? Who's being left out? Like those bigger structural issues, I don't think changed radically under under Obama. You're right. Day to day, Obamacare helped a lot of people. And that's awesome. Um, if you reduce college tuitions or eliminate them completely, that's going to help a lot of people or student debt. If you eliminate student debt, that's going to help a lot of people and it's going to help them immediately. And that's really good. Structurally, though, sy- systemically, I see the system still doing what it's always done. Exploit some, reward others. Exploit most. Reward. Exploit most. I, hey, listen, I'm right there with you. Well, uh, so what do we do? You know, you and I are middle-aged men. Uh, you know, we're looking at another... 20, 30 years, perhaps, right? Uh, yeah. Let's hope 30, 30 plus uh, on this planet. At this point, do we just throw up our arms and say, you know, I've been watching this for a half a century mm-hmm. and, you know, 45 is the man in charge? Yeah, you know, and, and, and you look at your local, you know, you and I come from a city uh, that uh, the mayor just resigned on the corruption. <laughs> I heard about that. Oh, you know, God. And it, no matter, you go local, you go statewide, you go national, you go international, it just seems mixed up, okay. muddled up. 
Okay. What, what, so what, what you're saying, so what I'm hearing you say is it's all absurd. It's utterly absurd. And, really and maybe, I know, I'm sorry. Sometimes I feel d- depressed and, and a little disheartened and maybe mm-hmm. lack of hope, but I don't want to be there. Okay. So, so how could you not you, be right? Donald Trump is the president of the United States. So how much more absurd can we get? Right? Yeah. So it's absurd. So, so I try, you know, I, in, in times like this, these times of turmoil and trouble, I really fall back on philosophy. I watch these little, um, Ted talk videos on YouTube. I watch, there's all these different education channels that talk about different philosophers and schools of thought. And I just find myself escaping into the world of, of philosophy and history because it's a safe place for me somehow, or possibly it allows me to put some of this insanity into context, allowing me to live my life day to day. Right? Because if we really dwell on it, we'll go nuts. So you have to live with a certain level of cognitive dissonance. So, you know, Donald Trump is the president of the United States and we're supposed to take all of everything else seriously. That's kind of crazy. So the first thing I do is go, okay, let's just pretend it's all just a big cosmic joke. We're a speck in the, in the cosmos. We're really meaningless. And it's all a big joke. Don't take yourself too seriously. Now take a big, deep breath. What do you have to do today? Oh, I have to mow the lawn. I have to do my homework. Uh, I have to get the oil changed in the car. Well, you know what? Go do those things. I go and do those things, but I acknowledge the absurdity of it all. In the scheme of the cosmos, it's all utterly absurd, but it's, it's my role here on Earth. And in my profession, I try to educate some of our youth to think object, um, um, critically, to look, try and view things objectively and dispassionately, and to try to make decisions based on evidence and science and precedent and hopefully make better decisions than, than people before them have made and maybe, you know, save the planet for a little longer. Um, but is it worth, is it worth it? Is it doing anything? I don't know, but what can I do? I could kill myself, but I don't want to. <laughs> Good. I'm glad you won't. Cause then <laughs> well, I'll have, you know, a- if you think, well, it doesn't, but doesn't suicide seem perfectly logical? If your conclusion is it's all utterly absurd and meaningless, then all of a sudden suicide doesn't become so crazy anymore. But if you kind of look at it as a big joke and say, well, you know, eventually I'm going to die anyway. Let me just ride this joke out to the end. Um, maybe that gets you through your day. You know, you're, if you're talking about thinking, caring people or artistic people or people who are sensitive, um, the real world is a really tough place to be a lot of times. Um, we have to do what we have to do to sort of get from day to day, whether it's Buddhism or, or work or laughing at the whole absurdity of it. I love, don't know. You love, know. love, love, love. I don't know the answers. Love, love, love. Just continue to love. I like that one because that's easy. That one's easy and I like easy. Just love. Just love people. Love your enemy. It's a beautiful thing. It's really, and then you talk about freedom. Then you really start to get freedom. If what you really experience is love, then you start to really experience true freedom because you're not bound up by your fears and your hates anymore. It's radical stuff. That's why they killed Jesus. I think that's a good place for us to uh, pause our ongoing conversation, <laughs> Sir William, our resident historian here on Troubadours and Rock On Tours. It's always uh, just, a pleasure. Yeah, and I just want to say, you know, I'm honored and flattered and privileged that you, that you want to talk to me and that you, that you have me on your show. It's a real, it's a real joy. Cause sometimes I feel like I just go off on tangents and I'm, and I'm, I'm completely incoherent, but you make me feel like I actually have a, a bright idea every now and then. You do indeed. You do. And people <laughs> across the country hear you and they enjoy what you have to offer. So thank you. Keep those cards and letters coming folks. <laughs> well, hopefully we see you before the summer's out, my friend. That would be awesome. Now we'll be up there again. I'll give you a holler. 
Excellent. Have a good okay. day. Have a good night. Peace. Peace. See you. Letters to Yasinin by Jim Harrison, originally published in 1973. Sergei Yasinin was a Russian poet who hanged himself in 1925. Letter 7 Death thou comest when I had thee least in mind, said every man years ago in England. Can't get around much anymore. So it's really a terrible surprise, unless, like you, we commit suicide. I worry some that the rope didn't break your neck, but that you dangled there, strangling from your body's weight. Such physics can mean a rather important matter of three or four minutes. Then I would guess there was a moment of black peacefulness. Then you were hurtling in space like a mortar. Who can say if a carcass smiles? if the baggage is happy at full rest.
The child drowns in a predictable puddle or inside the plastic bag from which you just took your tuxedo. The evening is certainly ruined, and we can go on from there, but that too is predictable. I want to know. I have no explanations for myself, but if someone told me that my sister wasn't with Jesus, they would get an ass-kicking. There's a fascinating tumor called a melanoma that apparently draws pigment from surrounding tissue until it's black as coal. That fatal lump of coal tucked against the spine. And of all things on earth a bullet can hit, human flesh is one of the least resistant. It's late autumn, and this is an official autumnal mood, a fully sanctioned event in which one may feel the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. But as poets, we would prefer to have a star fall on us. That meteor got me in the gizzard. Or lightning strike us, and not while we're playing golf, but perhaps in a wheat field while we're making love in a thunderstorm. Or a tornado take us away, outside of Mingo, Kansas, like Judy Garland, unfortunately. Or a rainbow suffocate us or skewered, dueling the mighty forces of anti-art. Maybe in sleep as a gray eminence. A painless sleep, of course. Or saving a girl from drowning, who turns out to be a mermaid. Letter 9 What if I own more paper clips than I'll ever use in this lifetime? My other possessions are shabby. The house half-painted, the car without a muffler, one dog with bad eyes, and the other dog a horny moron. Even the baby has a rash on her neck. But then we don't own humans. My good books were stolen at parties long ago, and two of the barn windows are broken, and the furnace is unreliable, and field mice daily feed on the wiring but the new foal appears healthy, though unmanageable, crawling under the fence and chased by my wife, who is stricken by the flu, not to speak of my own body, which has long suffered the ravages of drink and various nervous disorders that made me laugh and weep and caress my shotguns. But paperclips, rich in paperclips to sort my writings, which fill so many cartons under the bed. When I attach them, I say it's your job, after all, to keep this whole thing together. And I use them once with a rubber band to fire holes into the face of the president hanging on the office wall. We have freedom. You couldn't do that to Brezhnev, much less Stalin, on whose grave Mandelstam sits proudly in the form of the ultimate crow, a peerless crow, a crow without comparison on earth. But the paper clips are a small comfort, like meeting someone fatter than your, myself, and we both feel word, we both wordlessly recognize the fact. Or meeting someone my age, who is more of a drunk, more savage and hag-ridden, until they are no longer human, and seeing them in the street, I wonder how their heads, which are only wounds, balance on top of their bodies. A manuscript of a novel sits in front of me, held together with twenty clips. It is the paper equivalent of a duck, and a company far away has bought this perhaps beautiful duck 
and my time is free again. Guy. The kayak tips to the left, then to the right, as the middle-aged man searches his backpack for the salami and provolone sandwiches he made for the river trip. He takes another sip from his thermos of the warm tea and bourbon as the kayak continues tipping left to right. As ripples move outward toward the distant shore, reflecting sunlight back into the blue sky.
have it. Episode 328 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, our resident historian and good friend, Surf William. I would also like to thank our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis, writer Jim Harrison, as well as these musical artists, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, Sun Little, Simon and Garfunkel, The Budos Band, L1011, Julia Jacqueline, and of course Brentford Marsalis and Terence Blanchard too. It's so nice to have you with us. Thank you for listening. Until next week, let's give it a go and try to enjoy this one.